This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. More than 100,000 people rallied in Denver a year ago this week. What started as a women's rights march became more, an appeal for equality and, for some people, a protest against the new president. Their turnout surprised even the organizers, who suddenly had a big challenge in front of them. How to turn a rally into a movement. A year later and just before the second annual march, we're back with organizer Jessica Rogers and her colleague Lisa Cutter. Welcome to you both. Thank Thank you. you. How does the movement today compare to where you expected to be a year ago? (laughs) Do you want to? Um, so okay. today, so where where we've come, where we are today is a lot of the sister marches have organized together to become a national march on group, and Denver was a really big part of that. So we've gotten to be organized within each other, and then as far as locally um, in individual cities and states, um, we just keep working on what's in front of us. We had a women's summit earlier this year. Um, we participated in a an event at the Shorter AME Church with Indivisible um, and also did Juneteenth and Pride Fest. So big events where you're you're reaching out to the community as opposed to just doing this one march. Was was the transition difficult for you to do that? Um, I don't think it was. I mean, it wasn't difficult in like knowing the direction to go in. What was difficult is, um, you know, we had had all these people and volunteers and then kind of because we weren't professional organizers at the time, we didn't uh, do a great job of maintaining the volunteers and um, engaging people on a, on a statewide level. So kind of reestablishing that um, base of marchers and volunteers and participants was a little difficult. So you weren't organizers beforehand, but you definitely <laughs> seem to be now. Is that right? I'm growing into it. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I understand you spent much of the past year finding a focus, and it's crystallizing around political action, particularly at the state level. Right. What do you and and the other leaders of this uh, Women's March movement want to see happen this year? Well, I think that uh, our focus really is to try and help people take all this activism and channel it it into political action. You know, we have a system that – it's a great system. Democracy is amazing, and um, it's – that's a system we have to work in. So we're trying to help people kind of galvanize. We're hoping to capture this energy from the march and really um, help focus uh, that and direct it towards getting people to the polls. The national theme for the sister marches is march on march uh, on, to, on the polls in November. And so that's really what we're focused on right now moving forward is to try and uh, get people to participate a little bit more. You know, there's a lot of fatigue and besides voting, what specific things are you encouraging people to do to get involved? Mm. Uh, well, the Sunday after the march, um, a lot of uh, activists, um, a lot of them from Indivisible, have set up seven, I believe it's seven, it might be mm-hmm. more at this point, but seven events all around the state of Colorado. And so a lot of those events are going to talk about how to be um, a PCP or get involved locally or... A PCP, I'm sorry. A precinct committee ca- uh, chair. I see. So just organizing people locally locally, and getting behind campaigns, you know, helping volunteer for, for people's campaigns, you know, writing postcards, just sort of organizing their uh, and, and targeting their efforts. Like knocking on doors. Knocking yeah, on doors. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I just learned the phrase bird dogging and I love it. <laughs> bird dogging. Okay. Yeah. For, for bird dogging. Yeah. Yeah. And Lisa, you're actually running for the state house yourself as a Democrat yes. in Jefferson County. Yes, I am. Speaking to your group overall, 
it has this focus on social justice and and getting women's voices heard. Mm-hmm. What specific policy things do you want to see change to make those things happen? Oh, that's a that's a big question. I don't know. Well, I'll answer this two ways. First of all, we are we're going to move forward with. Uh, various groups that we've been engaging um, to help us shape the march this year and do some activities. uh, We're calling it the Continuation Committee. Do some activities uh, moving forward with those groups to sort of laser in on some specific legislation or political activities here that they'd like to see happen and they'd like us to help put energy around. Uh, The other thing, um, oh, I just lost my thought, but I mean, it's a Oh, I know what I was going to say is the Equal Rights Amendment. That's a big thing. That is a huge thing. But personally, I would love to see, and we've discussed it a little bit in the group, uh, love to see us move forward with that. It's a, It'd be a, a big statement. Tell me, tell me about that just briefly. Wow. I, I mean, we... Like I said, that's a really big thing, but there seems to be a lot of energy around it um, in certain circles that I've been talking to because of all the the things that have happened to women and the the voices that have been raised this past year. The Me Too um, movement. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but the Equal Right Amendment was ratified um, by 35, I think, of the 38 states that were required. But it was back in the 70s, so I'm not sure where it stands right now and what the process would be for um, actually getting it back on the table. But I, I personally, I'd love to see that happen. I'd love to see it considered. So I'd like to explore that. Is there also a focus on, on state stuff more than, than federal stuff? Do you, do you feel your group can have better impact locally as opposed to federally? I mean, even though we have been talking about a federal thing. Yeah, I mean, and I think getting getting people out to um, to to vote or to camp or bird dog for their <laughs> candidates. Um, and then also, so part of the continuation committee is it's going to be a mixture of activists and people that are involved in these organizations and people that do um, voter voters' rights. So the idea really is to, I don't know how much room I have to talk about legislation that's coming up. But so there's some upcoming legislation that um, we can have our groups focus on and really put the momentum toward specific legislation. Well, and I think I think thing is is that people are so frustrated and and really tired, tired of what's going on federally. And it feels like there's not much you can do and and although there is, I mean, I think protests and things are are helping and letters and so on. But but by really engaging locally, that's a way someone can have a tangible impact. I mean, I'd love people to understand that, you know, that local politics really matter because you you um your roads, your your schools, your I, there's so many things. Your fire protection. I mean, all those things are governed um, locally and handled locally. And you know, by taking that back, I think that's really got to be the long game, right? Taking back local um, control and and our local government, and uh, then that sort of feeds into national down the line. I think there's a a lot of people that would say that this past year has been drinking like from a fire hose when it comes to the news, not just if you're outraged by the Trump president, but but also with Me Too. There, there was a time there when it seemed like a new man was accused in the headlines each day. Uh, Lisa, you used the word tired earlier. You know, people yeah. are just tired. Yeah. How much has fatigue been an issue for you in trying to keep people's energy up and fighting for the things they demonstrated for last January? I think I think it's a big issue, and I think that's why the march is still relevant. I think that the march is, you know, a lot of people have questioned, well, what is it? What have you done? You know, what? how tangible is it? But to me, and we, we've talked a little bit about the things we plan to do moving forward and how we want to harness that. But to me, 
I believe in the power of symbolism. I believe in the power of community and sending a message. And I think um, not only for people in power now, but for the people that are doing it, the people that are out there marching, I think it just it just energizes people to see and to feel that bond of marching with people you don't know and thousands. Mm-hmm. And it was estimated there was upwards of 150,000 last year. And we're hoping for a really big turnout this year. And so far, the weather's cooperating. Yay. So so hopefully, if all the stars align, we'll be able to do something similar or even better this year. And I think that really empowers people and gives them that boost to keep moving forward. Last year, you, you did get some criticism uh, from people who may seem like natural allies uh, of your movement, but who felt kind of left out uh, of the marches across the country, really. They included racial minorities, also some men. Uh, there are also conservatives who may agree with you on women's empowerment or equality. Um, you know, are, are you hoping to reach out to them? Are you, are you afraid of alienating them with, with maybe some of your things as well? Oh, oh yeah, abs- absolutely. And, and we really took to heart... Um, of the feedback, a lot of the feedback from last year. Um, and it was, I mean, it's, it's, it's upsetting to realize that you've inadvertently continued to marginalize, marginalized communities. Um, so we really listened to that. And so this year we moved forward with a steering committee um, of women who have been doing the work for a very, very long time. And I think that's the other issue Two that we um, wanted to address is that people have been doing this work long, long before the November 2016 elections. Um, And we really wanted to respect and honor that work. So um, our steering committee is just made of some of the most powerhouse women um, in Denver that have been working on various issues um, for a very long time. So we are really grateful and lucky to have them um, agree to work with us. so yeah, that was, and I mean, and it's still like you know, it's going to be. I'm sure, I'm sure, I know we missed someone, and every you know, every year we can just make it better and make it better and not repeat the same steps. And if we don't keep trying, where are we going to be? You know, we we know that it's imperfect, everything's imperfect, but we're just going to keep trying, and we're really committed to that. Yeah, you can't not try. You just can't not try. You, you you mentioned earlier that you expect a large turnout this year for for the Women's March on Colorado. It's Saturday at Civic Center Park mm-hmm. in Denver. Are you going to be disappointed if it's not as big as as, as last year? No, no, I don't think so. I mean, it's hard to say, but I I, I think it'll be big. I, I don't think it'll be a disappointing size. Let's say if it's not as big as last year, I mean, there's there's always a million factors. It's hard to predict. Could burnout be one of them? Maybe. Or? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not seeing that. I mean, I could be surprised, but I'm not seeing that in the communities um, that we're engaging with. Well, are you? And I do. And I do think that since this the the first march was a reaction, and I do sure. kind of see this march um, as hopefully a rejuvenation. Um, so everybody can come and feed off the energy, and then we have plans for you to do on Sunday. Well put. <laughs> Thank, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jessica Rogers and Lisa Cutter, organizers of the Women's March on Colorado this Saturday. Up next, Colorado's Attorney General joins us. She penned a recent op-ed in the Washington Post about marijuana. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's too late to dismantle the marijuana industry. That's a headline from an op-ed by Colorado's Republican Attorney General that ran in the Washington Post recently. 
Cynthia Kaufman didn't support legalization, but she's sending a clear message to the Trump administration that the industry is here to stay. Attorney General Kaufman, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you very much. I imagine it wasn't a coincidence that this was published in the Washington Post. What was the intention to send a message to Attorney General Jeff Sessions and the Trump administration to not go any further in changing its enforcement of marijuana? That's it in part. And just to educate folks who are not from states that have legalized recreational marijuana about the issues that we are facing, because we can't bank this money. And because we have created thriving industries in uh, marijuana legalization markets that need a place to go. And the idea of General Sessions withdrawing the guidance that had existed previously leaves us um, in many ways with a blank slate. And this piece came out right after Sessions' announcement that he was putting more control in the hands of U.S. attorneys to decide how to enforce marijuana laws in their states. You're clear in your op-ed that you did not support the legalization of recreational marijuana in Colorado, and yet you say it's too late to go back on legalization. Can you explain a bit more why that is? I believe that over the last few years, Colorado has been on the forefront of creating a a regulatory framework that protects public safety and provides for the public's health. Uh, I think we have still have work to do uh, and lessons to learn, but we are too far into this um, now to say, all right, simply because of a, a memo from the Attorney General of the United States, which leaves the future somewhat uncertain, we'll just We'll stop what we are doing. Can't stop. I mean, we have folks who have invested hundreds of millions of dollars in legitimate businesses, depending on the Colorado state law um, to protect them as they made that investment. And it's my job as the state attorney general to defend the will of the people, uh, to keep this uh, a safe practice and to make sure that we go forward within the laws of the state of Colorado. What do you say to people that don't see it that way? One federally funded group here has been scathing. It's the Rocky Mountain High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area. It says legalization has spiked drug driving and teen use, among other things. And and there are also concerns about huge illegal grows in the forests. I mean, what do you say to, let's say, law enforcement officers that don't see this the way that you do? You know, like so many issues, there are multiple sides and visions depending on what a person sees in their career and what they are dealing with. I I think we have known that we need several years of data before we can say with assurance what the trends are. Uh, And everyone is doing their very best to keep folks safe, to keep marijuana out of the hands of kids, which is certainly... Uh, an important emphasis for me and my role to make sure that we deal with drug driving. And I think that all of those things work together um, to protect public health and safety. But we have a, a provision now in our constitution and we have statutes that carry this out and we have regulations in our agencies. Um, We have folks working together collectively and I think productively to make sure that recreational and medical marijuana are safely sold and used in Colorado. And it's just, uh, it is not possible and nor do I think it is realistic uh, or within the voters' expectation to go back at this point. 
I, I want to talk about future enforcement. The U.S. attorney in Colorado has said basically his priorities aren't going to change despite uh, Sessions' move. But last February, when you spoke to Colorado Matters, you thought the administration would step up enforcement at the state's borders. What do you predict at this point? I mean, do you have any indication of the Trump administration's intentions for the future when it comes to marijuana enforcement? You know, the state attorneys general have not received any additional guidance beyond what you all have reported. Hmm. Um, We had the statement of U.S. Attorney Bob Troyer saying we'll continue to follow the priorities that we have in Colorado. Our office works very well with U.S. Attorney Troyer, with the DEA. Uh, We have been dealing with cartel activity and folks who would grow illegally under the auspices of legalized marijuana in Colorado. We feel that we are... We are cracking down. We are focusing on the appropriate priorities. Some politicians are now pushing to reschedule marijuana, meaning a reduction from a Schedule One drug federally. Uh, that means it's among the most dangerous right now, like heroin and LSD. Do you support rescheduling marijuana? You know, I think the policy debate needs to take place, and appropriately in Washington, where Congress can change the scheduling of marijuana. But they certainly have several states now that they can look to, Colorado being the first um, to legalize recreational marijuana. We have offered, and many folks have taken us up on on our offer for information, for folks to come out and see what we are doing here in Colorado. Uh, Members of the Trump administration and Sessions administration have been to Colorado, and we continue to offer our guidance Uh, and our experience to folks so that they can make a reasonable decision. Uh, Speaking of Congress, just yesterday you sent House and Senate leadership a letter with 18 other attorneys general. It's a bipartisan group asking for legislation that would let banks banks work with marijuana companies in states where it's legal and well-regulated. How much a problem is that in Colorado, not to have legal banking for the marijuana industry? We, from law enforcement perspective, we think it is significant. Um, you're talking about uh, an attractive product in in terms of marijuana, um, a business that operates in cash, and creating yet another draw for people who would commit robberies, launder money. Uh, I think everyone is doing their best to keep the business above board, including those op- those operators who have legitimate businesses and want everyone to follow the law. But it's it's extremely difficult. Think about any other business. Um, if our grocery stores couldn't put money in the bank, uh, if um, sporting authorities couldn't put money in the bank, we would see that as a draw for crime. And that's exactly what happens in the marijuana industry. We're actually making them more susceptible when I think people who are doing legitimate business want that protection of the banking system. Before you go, uh, briefly, a question about opioids in the pharmaceutical industry. I know you've put Colorado in a group of 41 states investing corporation, investigating rather corporations' role in the opioid crisis. About a dozen states have already decided to sue certain companies. You've not taken that step. Um, and I wonder, what is the status of your investigation? And what would it mean for Coloradans if you decide to sue? Mm-hmm. I can give you a little bit of information about that. Because of the nature of the investigation right now and the stage we're in, I, I can't give a lot of detail. But the 41 attorneys general who are working together have 
been meeting regularly as a group and with representatives of the pharmaceutical industry and a federal judge to try and make sure that we have the information and the discovery that we need as attorneys general to weigh what has happened in the practices of these companies and determine whether a settlement is possible. The most important thing is that we get the drugs off the street and we all want to work to that end. Uh, and so that is the that is the main focus that we have right now is how do we deal with this pipeline of prescription medications that are leading to folks becoming addicted and perhaps turning to things like heroin that are a cheaper substitute for the opioids. We all know what a serious problem this is, and we're looking for ways to address it and address it quickly and meaningfully. But, but what's preventing Colorado from joining the states that believe there is enough to go on for a lawsuit? You know, we have looked at it, and I will just tell you, everyone has a a different approach to this, and you see it when we have multi-state litigation, Um, but you get more power uh, when you work together with other attorneys general, and frankly, I think sometimes we have law firms courting uh, attorneys general and local communities now to sue the pharmaceutical companies promising a big bottom line settlement that frankly may never come. And if it does, we'll be in 10 or 15 years after litigation is done and the attorneys have taken a third of that money. I want to make sure that we return the most money possible to Colorado. Attorney General Kaufman, thanks for being here. Thank you very much. Cynthia Kaufman is Colorado's attorney general. She's also running for the Republican nomination for governor. We talked about an op-ed she wrote in The Washington Post arguing that it's too late to undo Colorado's recreational marijuana industry. It looks like a storm is headed for the mountains this weekend, which would be good news for skiers who've seen too much sun and too little snow. In fact, some areas have received only a third of what they normally would for this time of year. What does this mean for the ski industry and the state's water supply? I'm joined once again by Joel Gratz of OpenSnow.com, a website that provides daily snow forecasts to about 1.5 million skiers worldwide. Joel, welcome back to Colorado Matters. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's start with this. Uh, this what might be good news. Uh, what's the forecast look like for the next few days? Yes, it, it it is good news, and we have a rather significant storm that will arrive in Colorado on Saturday, and I think the heaviest snow will fall Saturday night into Sunday morning, and that means another weekend powder day, which is always uh, good for folks that work uh, Monday through Friday. They they enjoy the weekend storms, and then I think the the better news is that we should see at least light snow a couple days. Uh, next week with potentially another significant storm uh, before the end of January. So at least two or three storms uh, over the next 10 days. And uh, that's a pretty good pattern. So so is this a break in the dry pattern or is this going to be kind of just a couple one-offs? Well, um, I don't know what's going to happen beyond about 10, 12 days from now. But at this point, this is the best kind of 10-day stretch uh, in terms of cold and snow that we'll probably have had all season. And uh, I think we will see additional storminess and cold air uh, continue into February. It might not be as consistent as what we'll see in the next 10 days, uh, but uh, I'm optimistic uh, that we'll, we'll keep seeing snow into at least the first week of February. You visit Colorado's ski areas periodically. With these low snow totals, how, how are the resorts looking right now? 
Yeah, so so it's actually interesting because perceptions are a little bit different than reality. I think the perception is that there's just no snow anywhere, and the reality is that most resorts are greater than fifty percent open, and actually most are uh, at least two thirds or three quarters open. And uh, the snowpack very close to the divide, so around Summit County uh, and and to the north, is actually reasonably close to uh, average or just above average in some spots. So um, many. Resorts are actually skiing uh, pretty well, especially after the storms we had last week. And um, the only, I guess, thing that you could see is even if the this, this resorts are skiing well, uh, you might notice that the snowpack is still below average. So there are a few trees sticking out, a few rocks here and there. Um, the the snowpack, the base, might not be as deep as normal. Um, but I was out last weekend and uh, and had a great time. So I'm thinking of Loveland, a base in Winter Park, those areas near near the Summit Summit County area. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah, right along the divide there from Winter Park over to Loveland, A-Basin, Keystone, uh, down to Breckenridge, um, those areas kind of close to the Continental Divide to the north. Uh, yeah, the snowpack based on not just resort measurements, but based on 30 years of, of government data is pretty close to average within 10% plus or minus of average. So um, they're the bright spot uh, so far this year. So for Colorado as a whole, though, I mean, we've had wet years and, and dry years. How bad is this overall compared to other times? Sure. So this year, and and again, from a statewide average standpoint, we are definitely, um, you know, I'd call it 50-ish percent of average in the southwestern part of the state. We're at 30 to 40 percent of average in the northeast, like we talked about, we're closer to average. So averaging that out, um, we get around half or so of snowpack uh, for this time of year. And that's based, again, on government data over the past 30 years. Now, some weather stations across the state are average or above. Um, some have the lowest snowpack they ever had. But from just a statewide average, uh, we're looking at 50 to 60 percent of average. But remember, that is just looking at uh, kind of from the late 70s through present, which is when we've had these automated stations around the state of Colorado. Uh, there have been very dry years in the 50s, 60s, 76, 77 was another one. Mm. Um, so I, I hesitate to say that this is you know necessarily the driest year we've ever seen, uh, but it is very dry, at least looking at the last 30 years of history. The last time we spoke, you mentioned the state seeing a La Nina pattern. Is that still the case? Did that ever develop? Yes. So, <laughs> tricky thing here. La Nina is ongoing, and La Nina means cooler than average warm or water temperatures in the Central Pacific Ocean. That is, in, that is absolutely happening. Um, what matters for us here in Colorado, because we are not in the Central Pacific Ocean, is that the colder than average temperatures in the Central Pacific Ocean will change storm track patterns across the globe and here in North America. And so generally what we'll see uh, during a La Nina storm track pattern is uh, a storm track that goes over the northwest up to Washington and British Columbia and then kind of dives down the spine of the Rockies, uh, Montana, Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, and then exits over to the east. And we've seen that almost this year. So the north northwest has been quite snowy. The east has been quite cold. Um, but what has happened is that that storm track was is maybe two to 300 miles on average to the north of Colorado in November, December, and early January. And that makes all the difference. And so it, it, I want to kind of call it uh, unlucky because the general La Nina pattern is holding, but it's just stayed a little bit too far to the north. The other thing that we've seen sometimes is that 
this is the second La Nina year. Last year was La Nina, and this season is La Nina as well. And sometimes the second La Nina, uh, for reasons that I'm not totally sure of, because there's a lot of variables at play, um, just doesn't produce as much uh, precipitation, as much favorable uh, a storm track for Colorado. But again, the summary is uh, just a couple hundred miles to the north. Everything was good. So uh, the storm track is dropping now, and hopefully it uh, it stays over the Central Rockies in Colorado for at least a couple of weeks, if not a couple of months. So, so what is the impact of all this uh, uh, on on whether we're going to have enough water this year? I mean, we've we've heard that the snowpack is the state's biggest reservoir. Yeah, absolutely. So there, there's kind of two impacts here of of low snow. One is meteorological and and water. The other is skiing and business. So from a meteorological standpoint, we are only uh, uh, you know in the middle of January, and we still have. Uh, one, two, three months effectively uh, until the middle of April to build the snowpack on average. And sometimes the snowpack can build uh, through the end of April and into early May. So from a meteorological standpoint, while it would take uh, a, a lot of storminess to get us back to average, it's entirely possible with three months uh, to go in the season. So while I'm uh, you know, I'm not unreasonably optimistic. I'm not uh, throwing in the towel just yet. From a skiing standpoint, uh, it, it's just a battle of perceptions. While there have been powder days, there will be powder days, and the skiing can be quite good. Uh, when folks hear that there's, you know, such a low snowpack, a lot of times they they decide not to go skiing. Um, and I understand that. But just as as a skier myself that loves skiing, uh, no matter what, uh, you can always find good conditions even in low snow years. So, is it too much to say that the, that some ski resorts have had a lost season? Is it too much to say that? You know, I think we're getting close to that, but I wouldn't say that just yet. You know, we were down across the board uh, for the holiday season uh, in late December, which is uh, a big part of, um, you know, the visitation for the season. Uh, Martin Luther King weekend was big. We just came off of that, and there was some decent snow there. Uh, President's weekend is in a couple of weeks, and we should maintain or grow the snowpack until then. Um, so my, my guess is that if we keep snowing, we could business could battle back and maybe get closer to average, uh, but we'll need a little bit of luck, um, you know, from for storms uh, to continue uh, to do that. And even if the skiing is good in March and April, uh, that perception issue is big. If Denver is fifty, sixty degrees, it's tough uh, to convince folks to go up to the mountains, even if the skiing is phenomenal. Joel, thanks for being here. You bet. Meteorologist Joe Gratz founded the website opensnow.com, which predicts snow conditions worldwide for more than 1.5 million users. Just ahead, a new play will fill the Denver Center's stage theater with mariachi music. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Mariachi music will fill the Denver Center's stage theater next week. American Mariachi is about a young woman breaking with yet honoring the traditions of this musical genre. And she does it all for her mother. It's the show's world premiere after being workshopped at the 2016 Colorado New Play Summit. Jose Cruz Gonzalez is the playwright. He lives in Los Angeles and joins me from NPR West. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Oh, thank you. 
Excited to be here. You, you teach in the Department of Theater and Dance at California State University in L.A. Is it true that the inspiration for this play came after you sat in on a mariachi class at the university? Yes. In fact, it was um, – I reached out to the teacher there uh, just and asked her if I could take, um, you know, um, the course. And she said, absolutely, come on in. And that started this wonderful journey of eventually writing this play. Did, did you know anything about mariachi beforehand? You know, no, not at all. I, you know, my parents listened to it as a when I was a kid, but no, nothing until I stepped into that world. So, so was that what made you take this class in the first place? Was or was just curiosity of, about the music? No, I think it was curiosity of the music, wanting to try something different. Um, you know, for me, I, I have no musical talent in my body, and uh, you know. <laughs> Taking that 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 class, and that's been now seven years. I've you know got a little better over time, but it was a, an amazing journey for me to learn about the music, and of course, you know, studying with different teachers, and from listening to the teachers tell their stories, there was this wonderful, wonderful story of women playing this music that's been traditionally played by men. And why was it traditionally so hard for women to break into mariachi? Well, you know, it's a it's a form that's a musical form that's hundreds of years old, and um, you know, it was um, you know, it comes out of the conquests of the New World, this merging of uh, music and cultures, this blending, and and um, so you know, it was some a tradition that has been passed on from uh, you know fathers to sons. And it wasn't really until, I'd say, the 1940s that women started to play just for a little bit in in, in Mexico as sort of a novelty. But it wasn't really until the 1970s here in the United States that women began to start their own groups. And your play is set in the American Southwest in the 1970s. Uh, Lucha yes. is the main character, and she's become obsessed with learning a very specific mariachi song. Could you sing or hum a bit of that for us? Sure. Um, I'll, I'll do it in Spanish and sure. do it in English for you. Sure. Mi rosa como ninguna, un bello perfume en flor, de plantar en mi jardín, que todos vean mi amor. You are a rose like no other, a beautiful perfume and bloom. I'll plant you in my garden for all to see your mine. Why is Lucha so committed to learning that song? Well, this is a song that her father, who was a working mariachi, wrote and sang and recorded for her mother. And so this is um, this was recorded in one of those um, voiceographs, you know, those old little booths where you could record a 45 record. Oh, right. Uh, and send it to family and, so, and friends and things like that. Yeah. yeah. And so this was, of course, a song to, because he was in love with, with her mother and um, wrote it for her. And of course, you know, this was cherished by the mother. Uh, she, Lucha listened to it growing up as her mother was always cleaning on the weekends, you know, in the house, that sort of thing. And so it was, you know, embedded in her early on. And this is something that her mother tr- cherished. What happens to, and, the, to that record? What, what yeah. happens to it? Well, it gets broken. And, you know, her mother is also suffering from early dementia. Mm. And when she plays that record, she comes alive. 
And once it's broken, it's her quest of, I've got to figure out how to learn that song. I've, I've got to learn to play this music. And of course, her cousin Boli says, are you out of your mind? Your father wouldn't allow it. And thus begins this journey of this young woman trying to find other women um, to learn to play this song, to, to find this group and, and, play, and, and play this song. I want to hear. Of course, they're going to run over all sorts of stuff. (laughs) Challenges, of course, because you you mentioned it's such a difficult thing and almost well, is taboo too strong a word back in the back in the seventies? Absolutely. You know, um, you know, in in this time again with working mariachis, you know, they they would go to bars and where the immigrant men are to listen, you know, to those songs from from of home and and uh, women didn't show up there. At least, you know, not uh, women that were you know respectable. I want to hear some music, more music from the show now. This is Cancion Mixteca, which is sung by Lucha's father. Uh, would it be accurate to describe the music as one of the main characters? Yes, that's a great, great question. You know, you, you've got nine performers on stage, and then you've got five musicians. And the mariachis are there throughout the play, and they are that tenth character, um, bringing the music to life, underscoring moments, um, bringing memory. You know, this music is something that, you know, is introduced at, uh, at baptisms, births, um, to the quinceañeras, to marriages, to death. So it's really a soundtrack of uh, people's lives. And, and people who will be going to this performance, they'll see the mariachi players on stage and in the audience. It provides context for them as well. That's right. I mean, they're really a, 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 an important narrative thread because when we start to play, we start with men, but then the journey changes and you see how that progression goes and in terms of how women become just as important and part of that mu- musical uh, tradition. With Colorado Matters from CPR News, we're speaking with Jose Cruz Gonzalez, playwright of American Mariachi, debuting at Denver Center's Stage Theater. This play is, is about a mother-daughter relationship and, and really female relationships as a, as a whole. What are the challenges of writing from a female perspective when, when you're not a woman? Good question. Well, listen, you know, this is a, a piece that I wanted to write about that honored, you know, these women, these pioneers. Uh, I know uh, some of these women personally. Um, one of them came from my hometown who would, you know, transform this music uh, by training generations of both men and women. Um, I wanted to honor my mother, my grandmother, my wife, you know, uh, my students. Uh, And it was great to have um, my musical director, Cynthia Rafer Flores, who herself is one of these mariachi pioneers that comes from the 70s, also played with this this, uh, other mariachi that came from my hometown. And so, you know, Cindy always would tell me straight. <laughs> if you, know, you got it right or not. Wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 
The title of the play was originally just the initials A.M. What did that stand for? Well, it originally standed, st- stood for American Mariachi. And uh, when I was telling Denver, you know, well, here, I'm thinking of the title as AM. And they said, well, what does it stand for? And they said, I said, American Mariachi. It's also the name of the woman, uh, Amalia Morales, which is the father who, who you know, married uh, Amalia. Uh, and it's written on that little record, AM. And, of course, AM radio, where he listened to this music. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. L.A. playwright Jose Cruz Gonzalez. The Denver Center premieres his play American Mariachi next week. The show was workshopped at the 2016 Colorado New Place Summit. We'll be back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hunting season is over in Colorado, and that means freezers across the state are stocked with wild meat. It could pose a risk, though. CPR's Sam Brash has the latest on a mysterious disease in deer and elk and concerns over whether it could ever spread to people. That's the sound of Patrick States cooking dinner for his wife and two daughters. They live in North Glen, and on the menu tonight, venison steak with mashed potatoes and a whiskey cream sauce. If you're eating red meat at our house, it's venison, either deer, elk, or antelope. And that's why the states skip the butcher counter at the grocery store and just eat what they hunt. We each have our specialty. Actually, the girls made some elk tamales this morning, but we use it in spaghetti, chili, soup, whatever. But that meat comes with a potential danger. Colorado is an epicenter for chronic wasting disease. It's a deadly neurological disorder in deer, elk, and moose, similar to mad cow. So far, humans have never contracted it, but scientists are worried that could change. Over dinner, I asked if anyone had seen the disease up close. Hunter states Patrick's eldest daughter says she has. My first time running across it in person, um, it was my first elk hunt. This was outside of Craig, Colorado. Snowy hills, sagebrush, and Hunter was able to get just a few feet from a female elk. And that's just not normal. At this point, State says she squared up and took a shot. She dropped right away. My dad and I went up closer to her to find that she was really skinny, like you could see her ribs. So they had the animal tested. And sure enough, it came back positive for CWD. The family threw out the meat. The steak on the table now, though, it came from a deer hunted in an area with a low prevalence of CWD. And Patrick states didn't get it screened for the disease. Right, like with her elk, it was obvious something was wrong with that animal. But if it's a big, healthy animal, I don't see any reason to get it tested. To take the approach of, if it looks healthy, it probably doesn't have CWD, is absolutely wrong. That's Matt Dunphy. He runs the Chronic Wasting Disease Alliance in Fort Collins, which educates hunters about CWD. And he says animals with the disease rarely live long enough to show any signs. Usually other factors will remove the animals from the landscape. 
things like predation, things like car accidents. Which is why he says hunters should always test animals if they come from areas with CWD, even though it's not thought to be a problem for people. Health officials know that in part because they monitor death records from Colorado and Wyoming, where the disease has been present the longest. And so far, they haven't seen an uptick in any human diseases potentially related to CWD. But Dumphy says that doesn't prove people are safe. Shy of locking up a handful of humans in a room and feeding them infected deer, we're probably not going to get that hard answer that we're looking for. Some have taken a less controversial approach to the same problem, like Dr. Mark Zabel. He's an immunologist at Colorado State University. Yeah. And he studies the things that cause the disease, called prions. Prions are an infectious agent that replicate themselves without a genetic blueprint. And eventually, that process can create tiny holes in a victim's brain. What worries Zabel are younger prion diseases. CWD we've only known about for 50 years. Older prion diseases, like mad cow, have evolved to infect people. Which leads us to believe that uh, it's only a matter of time before a CWD prion emerges that can do the same thing and infect a human. And people might be more vulnerable than scientists thought. A recent Canadian study found monkeys contracted CWD after eating infected venison. It's the first time a primate is known to have gotten the disease from meat. Back at dinner, I ran those new results by Patrick States. I mean, does that change your thinking at all about it? No, I would want to see more studies. And his daughter, Hunter, is on the same page. You know, everybody went out up in arms to learn about mad cow disease, but this is really similar and nobody's really done any research on it. So the families made a calculation. They see the risk, but until scientists demonstrate it's real, they're not ready to change how they hunt or how they eat. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. And speaking of deer, tomorrow we'll talk about Colorado Springs' struggle to manage deer and the possibility they'll allow hunting in the city. Finally, today, we have new music from Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats. The Denver Soul Band just announced they have a new record coming out, Tearing at the Seams. The follow-up to their gold-certified 2015 debut album is expected on March 9th. Here's a preview with the song, You Worry Me. Find a way to cross and you're gonna get there And I'm on fire today Ain't no water in the calm or even put me on I find a better way Am I crazy all the wind is gonna blow me down and the Night Sweats with You Worry Me, the first single from the band's sophomore album, Tearing at the Seams. It's going to be out March 9th. And that's our show. Thanks to Rachel Estabrook, Michael Hughes, Stephanie Wolf, Michelle Fulcher, and Shane Rumsey. I'm Nathan Hevel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day. I have dreams of you in places I've not seen before.